Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhat confessional in nature. This is something that hopefully grows on you. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, and I am uh, reporting to you, as usual, from Los Angeles, California, the uh, depths of Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're feeling well. I hope you had a good Halloween. Uh, did you get dressed up? Did you make bad decisions? Did you ingest chemicals? Uh, do you feel bad about yourself? Are you questioning your judgment? Are you concerned that you might be pregnant uh, with the child of a man you know only as werewolf? My guest today is Doug Dorst. He is the co-author, along with J.J. Abrams, the uh, film and television titan, of a new book called S. It's a bit of an unusual event in publishing, uh, and we're going to talk all about it in just a moment. Before we get started... Uh, I have a voicemail from a listener, and uh, her name is Monine. Is that your name, Monine? If it's not, uh, my apologies. Uh, that's what it says on my screen here. So uh, Monine 
has left word uh, about the show, in particular episode 220, my interview with the uh, very shy uh, and very sweet Chelsea Martin. So here is Monine. Hi, shy reserved person here to tell you. You know what? It's, uh, I just want to stop for a second because uh, Monine sounds shy and reserved. And it just it occurs to me uh, that this is, she sounds authentically shy. And I find myself wondering if there's such a thing as a, a loud, shy person. Is that possible? Hi, shy, reserved person here to tell you that, at least in my case, I really depend on people like yourself. For instance, it was so much easier in college to let the people who are good at discussions have them while I could stay in the background. Okay, so uh, just a couple thoughts here. You know, I think there's something to be said for having reserve and for uh, thinking before you speak. And, uh, you know, if you have that limitation where you're not uh, prone to uh, conversation, I think being aware of it and, uh, you know, is uh, admirable. How could you not be aware of it, though? It'd be weird to not be aware of that. Anyway, my point is that uh, just because someone can talk uh, does not mean that they have anything to say. As anyone uh, who has listened to me for the past two years can attest. <laughs> um, so... I think what I'm trying to say is that it's good to err on the side of quality and clarity. Does that make sense? Um, and in the case of uh, an interview, I think I would be very grateful, if not relieved, um, to have you in particular because you do seem naturally and genuinely curious. Uh, this is true. You are correct, Monine. I am uh, curious about people, and uh, I guess I'm vocally curious. Uh, particularly by way of this show. And, uh, you know, isn't everybody like that? I guess I just assume that everyone uh, out there is as curious as I am about what's going on uh, with other people, which is uh, the name of this program. You know, I think, it, I don't know, I think it's about loneliness. I think it's about frustration and about uh, bridging the loneliness uh, slash frustration divide. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is. I feel like the, I, I have a great sense of uh, subterranean life in people. And I want to bring it out both in myself and in others because I think it uh, is a great relief. That's the driver of my curiosity. Not that I want to get all up inside people's business, though I do like to do that. Uh, and, I, and I like to share my own to a degree. But I'm not saying there's no such thing as privacy either. I'm just saying that uh, honesty and candor about what we're experiencing as human beings is probably helpful. It's helpful to me anyway. I mean, I don't know... Uh, about Chelsea, but she seems to have developed some sort of like negative schema in relation to people and curiosity. Like curiosity is a bad thing, which m might explain her disinterest in visiting, you know, online communities or, you know, the websites that you asked about. So don't sweat her opinion of you. Okay. So, uh, Chelsea was very nice. I want to say that, but I will also add that I didn't feel like, uh, I could uh, access her or connect in the way that I would have hoped. 
in the way that I uh, can't, you know, sometimes can't connect uh, with people both in life and on this program. And of course that frustrates me because uh, I want to connect. It's sort of my job uh, as the host of this program, I think, to connect or at least to make a good faith effort. Um, But, you know, there's something interesting about not connecting too. You just got to let it be. Um, let's see. Oh, um, I also think that it's overly simplistic to say that shyness is, um, just about egoism. I think, uh, different dynamics, you know, um, come into play for every person. And in my case, you know, I was probably born reserved, but then the whole, um, children should be seen and not heard, uh, sort of like made it explode. Oh my God. See, this depresses me. Like as a human being, but as a parent, uh, especially uh, w- children should be seen and not heard. <laughs> like who, who says that to a uh, child? You have to be nice to your kids for God's sakes. Uh, and on a distantly related note, it occurs to me, uh, that I like to be heard and not seen. And, uh, did I ever tell you guys that when I was, a, uh, when I was a young child, I begged my uh, parents for a ventriloquist doll <laughs> for uh, Christmas one year. Uh, do you remember that doll Lester? Have I talked about this? The little African-American ventriloquist doll. I got that when I was a, uh, a boy and I used to practice ventri- uh, ventriloquism when I was approximately seven or eight years old. If you can imagine that. Um, about your neighbor next time. Actually, I got to, uh, I got to interrupt just so people, uh, out there who are listening, understand the the context. My neighbor is the young woman who lives downstairs from me in my apartment building, the neighbor in question. And in the morning, uh, she likes, she tends to like to go outside on her little patio and read, you know, shortly after waking up. And I, uh, shortly after waking up will often be opening my window and I will find myself accidentally glancing down and then making uh, uncomfortable eye contact with this young woman. <laughs> uh, both because of the uh, vertical dynamic where I'm up above in sort of a looming manner looking down upon her, which automatically uh, creates kind of an ominous feeling. And then also uh, I find myself curious to know what this young woman is reading, which might cause me to... Uh, look with more intensity than I should, if that makes sense, because I'm a book person. I'm always curious about what people are reading. So just a little bit of context. Next time something like that happens, just roll with it and see you were checking out her book. I guarantee you that that's less creepy than what she's imagining all by herself. Uh, anyway, thanks for the podcast, Brad. Stay curious. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Monine, for uh, offering your thoughts. If anyone else out there would like to leave me a voicemail message, you can do so uh, very easily over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over on the right side of your screen. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Doug Dorst. He is the co-author with filmmaker and producer J.J. Abrams of a new book called S. It is available now from Mulholland Books. Uh, It's a very unique literary object that is creating uh, quite a stir in the publishing world. A lot of news about it lately in the papers. Uh, It's worth mentioning that Mr. Dorst is also the author of critically acclaimed books like The Surf Guru and Alive in Necropolis. I'm very happy to have him here, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation. So this is it, folks. This is Doug Dorst, and his new book, once again, is called S. I am uh, in my office at Texas State University. It is on the mezzanine level of the English building which is, is sort of like a, uh, a being John Malkovich, seven and a half floor. Um, and my window looks out uh, at about ankle level uh, of people walking by. So I'm very much on display. So wait, they can like look down upon you? Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I'm trying to get... So, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm slightly below the walking surface that they are on. Okay, so like if they crouched down and like peered into the window, they would see you below. Yeah, they don't even really have to crouch. They okay. they can pretty much just see me. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> do, do, do you ever get people like ogling you or do you ever feel like, I mean, because I'm thinking of it from like a, a writerly standpoint. I guess, you know, if you're grading papers or you're meeting with students, no big deal. But like I'm one of those writers who, uh, you know, I can't write in public very well. I like to be sort of uh, cloistered. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't write here. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I never have. Um, I generally write at home, although sometimes I want to be out at a cafe or something. And uh, so, and, and sometimes I'll be more productive if I'm out and then feel guilty about not working or feel guilty about procrastinating. Um, but yeah, I tend not to work here. Um, too many distractions. And uh, but also it's a, it's a long way from Austin. So I, uh, I don't, I don't, this wouldn't be part of my regular writing schedule to come down here, do the commute. Okay. So wait a minute. And, and forgive me if you already said this, but what town is uh, Texas state in? This is San Marcos. Okay. San Marcos. Uh, wow. You're the second. I, I just talked to uh, Jennifer Dubois. Jennifer. Yeah. I was just listening to that. Oh, okay. So it's like back to back. And then Brian Allen Carr, is he also there or am I mistaken? Uh, not that I know of. Okay. He's somewhere in Texas, but I feel like I've had, oh. you know, multiple uh, Texas uh, teachers, you know, in, somewhere in the UT is there a UT right system? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, there is a UT system. And Texas State isn't, I think, strictly speaking, part of it, but I actually don't know the administrative boundaries of yeah. each. But it seems cool. It gives you the opportunity to, or you can like kind of live in Austin, do the commute. So you have, I mean, Austin seems like a pretty uh, groovy place to live, right? 
Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I love it. And did you? I've been, how long have you been there for? I moved to Austin in '05 uh, from San Francisco, and uh, I moved here because my wife was starting a PhD program at UT, and uh, I fell into a teaching job at another college in town, and you know we just liked being here, uh, and and the teaching gigs worked out. Cool. And so now you've got this new book coming out, which. You know, it's unconventional on a lot of different levels. Like, A, there's a co-authorship with a prominent uh, filmmaker. Uh, that doesn't happen every day. I mean, in, <laughs> I did have, I had Ned Vizzini on this show, and he did a book with Chris Columbus, who's a film director. So mm -hmm. the strange thing is that you're not the first author that I've spoken with who had this very thing happening. But, um, you know, the other thing about it is that I just got it today. Usually with this program, um, you know, galleys go out ahead of time. There's been a lot of secrecy around this book, which I think is sort of... Um, uh, you know, common for J.J. Abrams projects. He has a, a kind right. of a reputation for secrecy and for rolling things out. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this has maybe uh, differed uh, for you compared to your other books? Well, I mean, I think with, with the other books, there's the whole, um, you know, several months before publication, you get the, uh, the industry pre-publication reviews. And, you know, they come out one at a time and you sort of gradually have a sense of how the thing is going to be received. Um, you know, it's not to say that they're necessarily unanimous, but you at least get a sense of the range. Um, and, yeah, uh, I don't have that for this. Uh, so all of the response is going to come crashing in at once, which, you know, is uh, there's something nice about being able to wade into it. But uh you know, that, that's not the case here, and we'll see what happens. Do you pay attention to reviews? Do you read them? In the past, I have, and, um, and I'm trying not to now. I'm trying to wean myself off of that. I have a couple of my friends have really made a commitment um, to reading nothing uh, that's, that's out there about themselves, what reviews, even features, anything, um, which I know I will not be able to do. But I do think that to whatever degree I can, I want to avoid the reviews simply because, you know, what I've found out is that a great review is is fantastic. You know, it feels good, but it's kind of cotton candy. Uh, it feels great and then it's gone or to the extent that it isn't gone, it just leaves you feeling, um, okay, here my metaphor falls apart, uh, but just... Uh, I, find, I, don't know, just, I find myself I, I I can never trust nice things that people say about anything I do creatively. Not that I don't appreciate it, <laughs> but I think just by my nature right. I'm always like no, like that can't be or like they're missing something and then if I read a bad review or somebody says something negative, I tend to be like they are correct. I Right, they found me out. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, it's I mean it's a, it's the kind of the imposter syndrome, just another manifestation of it. Um so yeah, you don't absorb the good stuff as as anything resembling truth. The bad stuff feels like truth and lingers as if it is, and in reality, none of it is. So this is, you know, I'm I'm trying to sound very even about this, and it's very much a work in progress. But it does seem like it's kind of a healthier way to go about things. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like I, I tend to mistrust people who ha who say they literally never read a single thing written about them because it just. It seems impossible, unless these people are complete Luddites who have totally disconnected in Franzen-like fashion from the Internet. But if you're online with any degree of regularity and you have a book come out, 
the temptation to Google yourself is just too high. <laughs> I can't believe people wouldn't do that, but maybe they have uh, greater discipline than I would. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I feel the same way, although I do, in fact, know a couple people who are, um, I, I 100% believe that they're the exceptions to the rule. Who are they? Can you tell? Uh, I don't know if that would be a good idea. <laughs> no, Let me think about it. Yeah, think about it. Because like, the thing is, is if they, they don't want to read their reviews, they probably won't listen to this. <laughs> but then again, so we, could just, we can just yeah, talk, talk about Yeah, exactly. But then again, they might not want to be talked about. I don't know. It's right. Like, you know. I'm inclined to leave it alone. Okay. Uh, yeah. I understand. So uh, <laughs> this has got to be a different experience for you as well because uh, the book rolls out with, um, y- you know, in a manner that most – books do not roll out, meaning there's a lot of media attention. When you uh, collaborate with somebody who comes from the world of film and television, who is, uh, you know, operating at an echelon, um, like way up near the top, that's where J.J. Abrams is, and he's got name recognition, and he's directing big, huge franchises and stuff like that. And, um, you know, he put out this video trailer teaser for this book, and it got, what, like two and a half million hits? Yeah, uh, something like that. And did P- and I don't I, and forgive me, but I, did people know that it was a book when he teased it, or did they think it could be anything? <laughs> well, it was, uh, there were two trailers, and the first one did not specify what it was, and the second one did. Uh, so there, but there were about two or three weeks in between where I think people were left to kind of wonder about, you know what the hell the thing actually was. So you've got to be, I mean, it's got to be somewhat exciting, and, and is it maybe, you know, maybe a little bit unnerving to be an author um, with a, a kind of high literary reputation uh, who is suddenly thrust closer to like the white hot center of the culture or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's gotta be fun, but it's also gotta be like, whoa, whoa like what's going to happen here. This is a louder noise than maybe you you're accustomed to making. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm really not accustomed to people paying attention <laughs> to, to my stuff at all. Um, we, um, you know, that's, overstating it but i mean yeah i'm not to that kind of um well yeah there's a whole lot of um there are trumpets blowing about the book i've never had a trumpet blow about a book before and so that's Uh, how do you feel about that is it i mean is it equal parts exciting and unnerving are you more excited than unnerved (laughs) are you more unnerved uh, than excited i I think it's it's both and it veers wildly between the two poles you know just it might change in 10 minutes or so. Um, and mostly I'm trying not to think about it. You know, every time I catch myself, I'm really trying to say, okay, the book is out. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, actually just not really thinking about what is happening as much as possible. So basically you're, Which I know sounds you're, ridiculous, you're, but you're, you're loving the fact I'm that in I'm, denial. you're loving the fact that I'm asking you about this. Right now. <laughs> I'm helping, oh, I'm helping the cause. <laughs> this is how you, this is how it, to not think about it by having somebody just repeatedly ask you about it. No, it's, <laughs> it's cool. I mean, I know, I mean, of course it's exciting. And of course there's that, you know, having, if, we all dread, I think we all dread flopping and we all dread flopping on a big stage. Um, and yeah, so this is, this book's on a big stage. Uh, so, and and why don't we talk, uh, why don't we talk about just so, uh, because it's a unique book, you know, conceptually, uh, it's a unique physical object. mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the whole thing is a little bit, uh, new, 
in some ways or you know like i haven't quite seen anything like this in recent memory anyway and uh, it might help listeners if you could just kind of briefly describe um you know what s is and how sure. it, how it came to be well the um so most fundamentally uh i mean it started with jj's idea of wanting to do uh wanting to do a novel that unfolded in uh, a series of margin notes within another novel, within a text that already existed, that the characters of the um, of, of the larger novel are commenting on and reacting to, and um, and yeah, occupying the margins of. Um, so, in uh, like the physical object of S is is actually a book. It's a novel called Ship of Theseus by a writer named V. M. Straka which was ostensibly published in 1949 and it, it's all made up, but, um, in, and it's actually, it looks like it's a stolen library book. Well, right. I, I, I want to make yeah. sure, I want to make sure listeners understand, like this is a hardback book yes. that looks, I mean, it's even got like a, a Dewey decimal number on the spine, like a sticker, right? I mean, every little detail makes this thing look like something that was published in 1949 that you might find on a dusty library shelf the book itself comes encased uh, in like a black cardboard box with a seal. And then, of course, it's filled with all manner of uh, marginalia and inserts, actual loose pieces of paper and notes and postcards and, you know, all sorts of all sorts of stuff. And, uh, right. you know, it's like a, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, it's an it's an art object. Uh yeah, I hope it seems like that. I mean, I think it. I think it looks like that. I mean, uh, they, we, we worked really hard to, in you know, think about all of the cool things we could do within the form and slightly outside the form, and uh, and the publisher uh, really enabled us on on every on every count. Um, well, you know, it's so, funny. What's funny too when you talk about uh, the publisher giving you the latitude to do this. Uh, you know, I, it, it strikes me as the kind of pitch that only somebody um, with the cultural reach of J.J. Abrams, and, and it could also be like a guy like Stephen King or somebody like J.K. Rowling, um, but it's the kind of pitch that like if I made it, <laughs> they would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like, oh, right. you know, right. it's the only it, I mean, it requires like this level of experimentalism in terms of the object itself uh, almost requires that, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no way that I could have proposed it myself. I mean, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, but yeah, I think that he he has the ability to get people's attention. People are interested in his projects. He brings a certain sensibility to the things he does that a lot of people really groove on, and that's that's what makes it possible. And it was a publisher who was so. This is it's Mulholland. It's an imprint of Little Brown, and. Uh, and they were into it, and they and they committed fully, and that's why we have a book that looks so damn good. Okay, so uh, and also is getting the the support that it is. Well, sure. And and how did the uh, collaboration come about? How did you wind up working with J.J. Abrams? Well, so he had the idea. He wanted. He was thinking about a book that might work like this. And uh, Lindsay Weber, who's the president of the or the head of the film division at Bad Robot, I think she had read my first novel and. Uh, which and is, I think handed it to him. Just so uh, it's alive in Necropolis. Okay. And uh, and I think she said, "Hey, maybe this is a guy who who would be able to work with that." 
Uh, and then I got a call out of the blue from from an agent, uh, William Morris, saying, would you be at all interested in putting together a proposal to do a project with J.J. Abrams? Uh, entirely out of the blue. Okay, so and, you, you, uh, what, is, what happens to you internally during that call? Like, are you immediately thinking, holy shit, yes, or did you have any reservations, or did you think it was a joke? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't think it was a joke because I think my agent had called me and said that there was going to be a call coming uh, that would blow my mind. Uh, so I think I was ready for it there. I mean, I think, yeah, on, on some level, uh, I instantaneously thought, well, this would be the coolest thing ever. This is an amazing opportunity. Um, but I think also in times of extreme stimulation uh, like that, uh, I tend to shut down and just go on autopilot. So I think for a lot of it, it was just, you know, uh, couldn't quite believe it was happening, but I was talking to them uh, at the same time. Okay, so and, when, when, uh, did you, when did you start talking to JJ? Did you like, fly out to L.A. and have a meeting with him? Did you ever have like a, a sit-down, or was this all done over computer and phone? Like how did the actual we, collaboration unfold? We did a couple sit-downs. Um, I think... The first one was maybe late summer of 2011. It's actually, no, of 2009. I don't know. It's been going on for a long time. Um, but, yeah, what we did is I put together a proposal. Um, JJ really wanted there to be um, an element of a love story to it, and I had uh, I'd gotten really into uh, – all these stories of author controversies and it seemed like a really fun thing to work with. Uh, so I put together a proposal in which the two would, you know, uh, be fused. So wait, what, what do you, and, mean, what do you mean by you got into author controversies? Oh, I mean like, uh, I was reading a book. It's like, you know, who, who was Shakespeare really? Um, you know, was Shakespeare really William Shakespeare from Stratford or was he the Earl of Oxford or was he, you know, Stan Jones from Beaumont, Texas, or, you know, there's, there's actually like, uh, there are a great many theories about who Shakespeare that, you know, Shakespeare didn't actually write Shakespeare. Uh, and so someone else was actually writing it. Okay. Sure. And then there, there are, there's a 20th century, uh, authorship controversy of the writer B Traven, so B period Traven. Um, and yeah, for, for decades, uh, no one knew who he was. And, uh, but of course there was all kinds of speculation it just seemed like a fun mystery to work with. I'm surprised, um, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often, you know, like there's, like, I feel like, um, like the, I guess maybe Banksy in, in visual art mm -hmm. is an example of that, but like there, there aren't very many that I can think of anyway. I mean, Thomas Pynchon, I guess kind of does right. that, you know, where he's like the invisible author. You don't know who he is it's very cryptic but i'm surprised it doesn't happen more often maybe maybe yeah. it does and we just don't know about it are there authors working you know pseudonymously and there actually uh pynchon is mentioned in connection with one authorship mystery and you know i might bungle this because i haven't read about it in several years but um there was a series of letters to the editor in this uh, little local newspaper in maybe santa rosa california um I don't even remember when it was, but it was a long time ago. And uh, a lot of people thought that Pynchon was writing those letters. Um, based, but then again, based there are on all what? Based on what? I think he was, people think he was probably living around there at the time. And um, 
the the sense of humor that was in them and the you know sort of feigned outrage about things uh you know it's been too long i have to go back and check it out but if you if you well you have listeners with internet connections they should probably you know check it out because it's pretty fascinating actually yeah um and again, it's not you know it's not like a huge literary world conundrum, but it's still interesting. Did um, did Pynchon write these letters, or was it someone who was really good at mimicking Pynchon's you know comedic sensibility who was doing it? Right? Could um, it, yeah, could have just been like an aspiring author, or like just like a, a huge like nerdy fan you know, with like right exactly co-opted the voice. So you had the um, you know the author controversy storyline. JJ wanted it to be a love story. You find you found a way to meld the two. Um, did you? I mean, did you have like a strong sense of collaboration with him uh, on equal footing, or did it feel more like he was the director and you were the screenwriter, kind of taking marching orders and trying to kind of realize his vision? No, it was. I mean, it was very much equal footing. I mean, we we both when we talked in person uh, and when we talked on the phone. Uh, Especially, you know, in those in that first year, I mean, what we were talking about is, okay, who are these characters? Um, You know, what do they want? What's their what are their story arcs? Um, You know, how and why are they leaving this book for each other? And then and we would also talk sort of more mechanically about, you know, how does a book how is a book like this going to work, actually? Um, So, I mean, it felt very much like uh, we were sort of gradually you know, putting together a foundation that I could then use to go improvise from. If, if in fact he was giving marching orders, he did it very, uh, like I wasn't aware of it and he's got awesome mind control powers. <laughs> well, he is uh, what he's directing stories. It's the Jedi mind trick or something. You know? Yeah. So I guess it's possible. <laughs> um, but, but no, it, it felt to me like, like he and I and, and Lindsay, uh, from who was the one who gave him my book in the first place, uh, yeah, we were, you know, it was one of those, uh, I've never been in a writer's room, but I imagine sort of a writer's room, you know, just throwing ideas around and trying to follow, you know, you come up with an idea that this might happen and you play what if right. with it and take it down the road. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, I mean, it's pretty free form and, uh, you know, we, we got to some things that felt right. And, uh, and then I went off into, my little bunker uh, to put together a sample that we could take to publishers. Okay. So that's the way that it worked. Like you guys collaborated on structure and essentially hammered out an outline together. And then you would go off and do the actual, uh, you know, the grinding work of getting the prose down on the page. And then you would send it to JJ. He would read. Am I imagining this correctly? Yeah, no, no, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, yeah, I would go off and write and then, you know, finish a chapter, send it back, get some notes uh, from him and from Lindsay and uh and even the notes weren't i mean the notes were never oh change this you know this feels wrong uh more often than not the notes were this is working here's why i think it's working and you should keep going and and you know follow the story where it takes you so um which is actually like an amazing uh kind of support system to be working with yeah positive. you know where you've got freedom and and uh and support and enthusiasm okay so i want to ask you something related to uh you know the film and television side of you know jj J. abrams uh, creative output which is the production 
that side, you know, because from a storytelling and, and narrative perspective, uh, I think there's a lot more uh, need and a lot more attention paid to formal structure. You know, if a screen, mm. screenplay is a defined form, it's like 110 pages and not much more unless you really get, you know, into like director's cut territory or something or some sort of epic right. film. But, you know, it's a defined form, whereas a novel, there's a lot um, – there's a lot more room to sort of uh, wiggle. And I think a lot of literary authors, uh, you know, oftentimes are bad at plot. You hear that a lot, you know, great at voice, great at character, bad at plot. And so structure can, can seem elusive. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that you and your work qualify in quite that way, but I'm wondering if by working with somebody like JJ, if you found yourself learning uh, about how to structure a story. Was there anything like, you know, that you took away from that, that changed the way you might view your own work going forward? Um, I would say not, not structurally. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, about certainly I learned about the way story arcs, I learned more about the way story art story arcs work, you know, set up and payoff. But as far as structure, um, no, in fact, I was, for a long time dreading that I was going about the whole thing wrong uh, because uh, well, I mean, so screenwriting is not just very structured in, in the product, right. In, in the final script, which is going to be 115 pages with your, you know, plot point at page 30, you know um, but it's also really structured in the execution of it. As far as I understand, which is to say, nothing gets green lit until you've got a really tight outline with all of those beats mapped out. And, um, that far more so even than say a novel in which the writer has an outline and is going to write from it, um, that the screenplay is really a step-by-step -step methodical, um, not transcription, but, um, uh, execution of, of what has been planned out extensively beforehand. And, uh, I'm not used to working that way in, in fiction. And, but I don't, he never, he didn't want me to work that way. Uh, or, or if he did, he didn't say anything about it. So I think he, I think he understood that we're talking about a different medium, uh, for one thing that, that, yeah, maybe being too structured keeps, might keep some magic from happening in the story. And I think he learned pretty quickly that I'm not, um, a terribly organized thinker. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, so I guess I, I worried that he would be nervous as someone who works with screenwriters all the time and TV writers, that he would be nervous working with me when I'm just all over the place and, and I like to improvise. Well, no, but, you uh, know, that seems that that's, that's to his credit. I think, I mean, to at least have the, 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 general awareness that you know books a different beast and it can't be treated like a movie you know right. in in exactly the you know in, in a kind of a one for one way um but it makes me wonder you know because of your um you know i think most good novelists are disorganized thinkers and have to be a little bit um willing to sort of uh, follow their whims and whatnot uh mm. did you like what was there a dark night of the soul with this book where you or were there many <laughs> where you <laughs> found yourself like staring at the flashing cursor and going oh shit like what have i gotten myself into this is a disaster he's going to kick me off the project as screenwriters often are you know screenwriters are often dispatched um you know and they bring on new writers to tweak the thing because somebody has sort of 
uh, run out of gas, you know, creatively on a particular project? Right. Like, did you think that this was a possibility for you or did you have a pretty firm sense of commitment that they were going to stick with you all the way to the end? I had a pretty good sense of commitment, but, but, you know, I'm really good at worrying. And so, I mean, of course, if it can be worried about and it's a worst case scenario, I will, I will worry about it. Um, so yeah, there were, you know, in a couple of the darkest moments, there was, you know, not only, not only am I not going to pull this off, uh, I will be found out for being a fraud and, <laughs> and yeah, uh, it'll be taken out of my hands. Did you, um, did you ever leave like JJ, like a long rambling voicemail or anything like that? None of that. Oh, thank God. No, no. <laughs> okay, good. Um, seems like something I would do, but you know, <laughs> but you know, it's, it like with any book, it, there are doubts. There are like grave, grave, huge doubts that come up in different forms at different stages of the process, um, which I would be having anyway. It's just that these are then attached to my sense of, you know, of, you know, having JJ there wanting it to be good. Right. Not wanting uh, to, not wanting to disappoint, but also, I mean, when, as you were writing this, you had to have a sense of a much bigger audience on the other end of the thing than you've ever had before, like a much bigger readership just by virtue of his attachment and the rollout as we've discussed. So like, were you thinking of this broader readership as you were writing? Um, no, I mean, now and then I would allow myself to think about it when I was not writing. But if I thought about it when I was writing, it was just a instant paralysis. And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. I know I'm picturing, yeah. I'm picturing you like having like nightmare visions of being chased by like everyone at Comic-Con or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God I never went, you know, that far, but thank you for putting it in my nightmares. Cause, you know, it's still a possibility. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I totally lost my place. No, just in terms of like, like, thinking about thinking about the audience, you know, thinking about the readership oh, as you were writing, like if, you know, anticipating their attention factored in, or if it was something you had to shut off, it sounds like you had to kind of actively ignore it, which makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in some days that's easier than others to actively ignore it. But, um, the deadline it was a really ambitious deadline uh, on the book, and so there was a fair amount of, I mean, there was a lot of time pressure. Um, plus, I'm teaching full-time, and uh, and we had a kid, uh, you know, in, two years ago. Well, congratulations. So there was a lot of, thank you, thanks. Uh, but there was, I mean, there was so much pressure from the clock that um, that actually makes it easier to tune out some of the things that, um might grow to be huge distractions if, if, if it were possible. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I was just gonna say, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I had a conversation like a week ago with a buddy of mine who's a writer who, um, you know, he and his wife just had their first child and, uh, you know, right before the baby was born, uh, we were emailing back and forth and he was asking me about how this was going to affect him. And he, you know, it's sort of speculating on like, is this going to end it? Like, I'm not going to be able to write ever again, or is it going to, you know, create some new drive and focus? And, you know, I guess it's different for different people, but I feel like whether it's a child or whether it's a, uh, a deadline coupled with teaching and, or whatever the obligations you might have, um, you know, being really busy can be good for productivity. I mean, there's, there's a point at which I think it can make you crazy, but, um, having too much time can be, uh, kind of a toxic luxury. Oh yeah, I know. I completely agree. Um, 
I have never worked so efficiently before. Um, you know, it, when you don't have a choice, it's amazing what you can learn to do that, um, that there's no precedent for, you know what I mean? I, I've been, I'm not a terribly disciplined writer. Um, and I kind of needed to learn to be one, uh, to whatever degree I could. So d- does this change, uh, does this change your approach going forward? Do you think you can replicate this or do you think that like the discipline that you had on this project was derived from external pressure that might be hard to, um, duplicate? I think it was derived from external pressure and, I hope that I will retain some of it, you know, having experienced it, you know, I hope a little bit has sunk in. Um, I could use some of that actually, (laughs) but it's, you know, it's cool. Like I had never worked so intensely for so long before. And, you know, I had no, I had no idea I could do that. And so it really is in some ways kind of a revelation of, wow, that, that's that was possible. Right. Yeah. So okay. I would never have thought it was. Okay. So for me, anyway. So let's drill down into this. Like, what do you mean? Like that? Like, were you talking like you're writing for like 14 hours at a stretch or seven days a week or, you know what I'm saying? What did it, what did you actually do? Uh, it would depend. Um, so I'm not much as I would love to be the writer who, and when I got to grad school, you know, Frank Conroy sat us all down on, on the first day and said, okay, you need to write three hours a day, the same three hours, no distractions. You don't even get up and make a cup of tea. It's, you know, like nine to 12. And, um, never once have I been able to do that for more than two (laughs) days at a time. So, but with this, so yeah, it wasn't discipline in terms of structured schedule. It was more like I need to make sure that I'm ready to be there, uh, in, in writing mode at every possible opportunity, you know, to the, you know, as, as far as much as I can do it without physically falling apart. Um, and you know, again, it's like baby doesn't sleep. Um, yeah, there, and you know, it's a, it's a, a tough week at school where all these things are coming due. And, you know, at the time my wife was doing her dissertation. So there was a lot of just grabbing time where I could, but then once I grabbed it, not screwing around with it. Right, uh, right. None not of that, as much as I would. None of like the like what I call like the internet preamble, where it's like I just need yeah, to, it, I just need to read the news for a couple hours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I'm I'm susceptible to that. Yeah, me too. Um, but I, you know, but there were also binges, especially when the sort of intermediary deadlines came up. Um, I pulled more all-nighters with this book than I did in all my years undergrad and law school. Uh, like many more. Okay, so wait, uh, and, and I'm old now, so that's hard. How old are you? Can I ask how old you are? That... Uh, Forty-four. Okay, well, that's not that old. Okay, I'm not that old, yeah. right? But it does get harder to pull the all-nighter. I, uh, I would agree. I've lost some, or rather, to bounce back from it. Yeah. Afterward. Yeah. So, are you? Uh, are were you doing any drugs? Like, were you on Adderall or like just hyper caffeinated, or did you do this completely sober? <laughs> oh, uh, no, caffeinated. Uh, I I wish I'd thought to get Adderall. That would have been a good. Yeah. I did uh, uh, I did as an experiment. I talked about it on this show, but like there's been so much chatter about writers on Adderall, which I have argued is like the uh, you know, the literary equivalent of juicing. Uh, <laughs> but and I'm not even kidding. Like I think it really is. I mean, I I also think that it, you know, has diminishing returns. You can easily burn yourself <laughs> out trying to kind of continually create under those circumstances, but um you know, it, it's uh 
I mean, I, I tend to stick to caffeine, but I, I did Adderall in like a, you know, I picked a day because now, you know, I have a child as well. You have to schedule these things. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it wasn't like uh, the old days where it could just be like Tuesday, you know? <laughs> um, I had to clear my schedule. But I went to a coffee shop and I sat there and I, I, give my, I gave myself like a six or seven hour block of time. And I did not move and I did not want to move. And furthermore, mm. I, I could have continued to sit there for several more hours. Like I wish in retrospect that I would have had 10 or 12 hours and you know, mm. I, it was very strange. I felt like, uh, like I lost my peripheral vision a little bit. You just kind of get mm -hmm. sucked, sucked into your computer screen in a way that like my cup of tea doesn't quite <laughs> gener generate. Well, but what about the results? Were you happy with what came out and did it feel different from, uh, what, usually comes out of you? I think it could. No, I mean, it felt a little bit different. There's a little, it was a little bit freeing, you know, you're just kind of chatty. It's like, you know, it's like somebody who's coked up or something. I mean, it's basically as biker <laughs> speed. Like it, that's really what, what Adderall is, is biker speed. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of its chemical structure, uh, you know, there's something on Wikipedia about it, but this is what like, <laughs> this is what like the hell's angels were taking back in the sixties. And I think it's what, huh. uh, I think it's what JFK was taking. Uh, oh. you know, repeatedly, but, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. I think the fact that it was my, and I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that it was like my, my virgin experience. I feel like I'm way behind <laughs> the curve, but I think the fact that it was my virgin experience made me like hyper-conscious of it. And so I was kind mm -hmm. of like trying to write while also, um, constantly monitoring my, uh, neurological situation and like my heart murmur, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so maybe if I like were to try to do a project using Adderall in like a, you know, a, a, uh, structured way, I would lose some of that and just be able to get into the work. But I had mm -hmm. so I had somebody email me after I mentioned this on the show and he was like, uh, cause I, you know, I'd go, I go back and forth. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea for me health wise or whatever, um, <laughs> to get too deep into it. But he, he, this guy emailed me and he's like, yeah, you know, I was prescribed Adderall for, um, I forget what it was for, probably attention deficit disorder or something like that. And, um, he took it and wound up cranking out like a 75 page novella in, I want to say like a day or two. Or I mean, just like, and but then it, it won an award and got published. You know? Oh my god! So, <laughs> so it was good. Yeah. So he was like, I don't mean to be, um, you know, I don't mean to beat the drum for uh, drug abuse or anything. But he's like, in my case, it definitely helped, and I hmm. had this like, you know, ecstatic creative experience that yielded, you know, this like book and, and you know, ra in, a, in a rapid output scenario. And you know, like that's just one person conceding that. I, I you know, I think there are a lot of writers who are probably dabbling in such things and are creating that way. I wonder mm -hmm. how many of them could sustain it. That's my question. You know? Like what? Yeah. It's a good question. I don't, you know, I haven't, I don't know many people who've talked about it, so I don't really feel like how many people, like I'm not sure who's juicing. How many, exactly. How many people talk about steroids? <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, um, so no, so for me it was, it was caffeine and, and panic. Okay. Uh, well, fear is a good motivator, you know, yeah. I think it's a good motivator. And I think having, I don't know, having a sense of, uh, obligation to a collaborator, having a sense of a, um, significantly larger readership awaiting the end product, like all of that stuff, while it creates some psychological disturbance here and there is probably in the end positive, you know, it can't, mm -hmm. can't hurt from a productivity standpoint. And actually, you know, I, I should say that, you know, there were times when being aware of a larger audience than I've ever had, there were some times where that was useful, you know, like when things 
are not going well. When things were not going well and I was exhausted, I thought everything sucked. Um, and, you know, because we're writers, that happens all the time. Um, but but sometimes the, you know, thinking about, oh, wow, you know what? More people are going to read this. I've got a chance to, you know, let more people see what I do. And, you know, sometimes there were a couple of times where that was the little nudge to keep going. Well, you know what? So, that, that's a good point because I think for people who write in a literary vein, uh, and I would probably count myself among them, it can be really hard when you're sitting in your little hovel working on, you know, your uh, edgy you know, <laughs> novel or like, you know, you're really like inward looking memoir or whatever it might be. I think it can be hard sometimes to imagine connecting with a large audience. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. and, and maybe there's something to be said for um, trying to cultivate that. Like, you know, whether or not the book actually winds up hitting, it, maybe it's a good thing to imagine speaking to a lot of people as opposed to thinking like, well, 1,500 people will like it or, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I think it could go either way because it if it leads you to change what you're doing to make it more, um, to make it less, you know, distinctive, distinctively quirkily you and more this thing that you imagine has, you know, has beveled edges, uh, or, you know, or rather that is, is softer that, that you're making something, uh, sorry. Uh, okay. Metaphor is totally failing me. Um, <laughs> but if you're, you know, if, if there's something essential that is not getting into it because you're trying to write from this place where you're certainly aware of the desire for larger appeal, um, and if you're aware of it, it's probably getting in there subconsciously, um, you know, maybe that's a bad thing. Well, I was going to say, like, just a counterpoint, like, I remember reading, like, On Writing by Stephen King years ago, and I want to say, <laughs> you know, he writes everything with his wife Tabitha in mind. Um, you know, so this is a guy with like, you know, as big of a readership as there is on planet earth. And when he's sitting down at his typewriter at his computer or whatever, uh, he's essentially writing to one person each and every time. Right. And if he gets her approval, then the likelihood that that approval will, um, you know, be, be replicated millions of times over. I mean, whatever his formula is, it tends to be working for him from a readership perspective. So, you know, maybe that's it too. Maybe, maybe just focusing on one person, um, with really, I don't know, with a, with a really golden touch is it's equally. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are probably, you know, hardcores who would say that you shouldn't even think about that one person. It should be, if you want to read it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, it's, there are any number of, it's whatever works for you, I think, you know, and if that's, if that's what works for them, uh, great. I mean, it, it makes sense to me, but it also you know, where you're acting. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep interrupting, but I just like, it's, no, no. It's, it's a crazy thing to think about because how could you possibly like, I, I, you know, intellectually, it seems unbelievable to me that Stephen King with all the success he's had and with all the millions of readers that he's reached, how could he possibly be sitting down at his keyboard thinking this is for Tabitha? I hope she likes it. And by the way, it is Tabitha, right? I'm, I just, I believe that. so. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, hopefully I'm not misstating that, but <laughs> you know, it, it seems to me he has to be thinking like millions of people will read this. Like, or maybe not. It seems it seems like an incredible level of mental discipline that I would never be capable of. Like, I would always be thinking a million different things, you know. And it's I think it's maybe part of the problem for me. <laughs> well, I mean, it, but it might not be mental discipline. It might be just an ability to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just 
you you do it because you can. Um, you, you put it out of your mind. You know you don't want to think about it, and you've got something within you that actually allows you not to think about it. Um, yeah, that's amazing to me. People who are able in a really real way to emotionally compartmentalize and you know i i just for whatever reason bill clinton popped into my head but like his <laughs> you know because that word was thrown around so much um during his presidency and around mm-hmm. the monica Lewinsky affair just the way that he could sort of like you know be in a room talking about like some international crisis and then in the next minute like he's with monica and he's got a cigar in his hand or whatever. You know? <laughs> um, but you know it is strange you know how people can sort of like block themselves off i just don't know if that's necessarily me i feel like Right. I have right. a hard time compartmentalizing. So, yeah, and, and I'm with you. I would like it. It would probably be great to have access to it more, although I'm guessing you know, and that's for writing, although I'm guessing like in real life, it's maybe not uh, such a great thing. Yeah. If I mean, you're yeah. just walking around compartmentalizing stuff, but, uh, you know, it probably helps you do jobs. I was going to say it has its uses, but it can, you know, yeah. it's also got its pitfalls. So. Um, with regard to this project and the fact that you're working with JJ, um, you know, I've been reading some of the, uh, some of the press surrounding the book that's rolled out this past week. And JJ has been very explicit about the fact that this is a book and it was conceived as such. And he has absolutely no intention of adapting it for the screen. And mm-hmm. does that piss you off? <laughs> because it's- no, 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 not at all. I mean, that was, it was clear from the beginning. And I think the way that the, the stories took shape. I mean, I don't know how the hell it could be anything else. Um, it's, it's possible that there's, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sure, I guess someone somewhere could come up with something, but I no, it, it doesn't make sense to me as anything, but a book. Okay. Just, um, I just think that just yeah. thinking from like a readership or book sale standpoint and the fact that like it's JJ, he's right there. All he would have to do is like, what, pinky finger and this would be greenlit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm sure he could, he could get people to tackle it. Um, but I think, but he's also, he's a book lover, you know, and this was the idea for the book. And I think he, I mean, I shouldn't speak for him, but my sense, you know, from hearing him talk about it is that, you know, that's, there's something sacred about the project just as, as book, right? you know, well, and, and why mess with that? Well, and that's the thing too, is that, you know, a book like this, I know there's going to be an ebook edition that's going to have some interactive elements, but it really is a book that is best experienced as a hardback. And I would say that anyway, uh, I'm increasingly of that persuasion. I've kind of fluctuated a little bit during the, the dawn of the digital age, trying, <laughs> trying to embrace, but like, I really do think there's something slow foodie about a book that needs to be preserved and is really healthy for human beings, um, you know, in the age of the screen. Uh, yeah, I mean the computer screen, the phone screen, you know, the television right. screen. It's nice to have just a book that doesn't like move or hyperlink or anything. But um, you know, this is yeah, and, and I'm sorry, I was just gonna, you know, I I am generally of that mind. I don't, you know, uh, I don't need other people to feel that way. But you know, I like books, and and there's something about the hardback book, um, especially that. You know, the it's the texture of the cover, which is, you know, it's it's distressed and the pages are distressed and, and all of the physical items that are tucked in have tactile pleasures. So, um, you know, I think touch is actually a big the a big part of, of the reading experience here. And actually, I mean, I I was sort of of the mind that we shouldn't even do uh, an e-version of it. 
um, which is commercial suicide. Uh, I was going to, I was going to say your publisher, yeah. your publisher must've been like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. They're like, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, right. But, um, it's, they did actually, I mean, I think they did a fantastic job of replicating the experience as, as much as they could, given the fact that it's a screen and actually they ended up building in a feature. It's a, it's, you can toggle off the margin notes if you want and just read the text of Ship of Theseus, which is actually really cool. And that got me thinking, wait a minute, that's in some ways an advantage because if you want this clean experience with, with Straka's novel, you can get it. Whereas in the hardback version, you really do have to, you have to make your peace with how the margin notes and all the various colored inks and, you know, how occupying the page along with um, the text of the novel. So what about... So, oh- I'm sorry, but I was going to say, like, now that the book is out and, um, you know, it's making its way out into the world and readers are finding it, there's got to be some kind of publicity tour to go along with um, this unorthodox rollout. Like, what are you what are you guys going to be doing? There's um, there's really one big event. um, And that that's what's set so far. We're going to do an event at Symphony Space in New York on November 23rd. And I I think it's going to be you know, it's uh, sort of an in-conversation with uh, uh, Sarah Vowell is going to introduce it. It's a, uh, in part a benefit for 826 New York. And, uh, and then Lena Dunham is going to moderate uh, a conversation that, uh, that we'll be having. So, so I, I, I imagine this is going to be like a bigger situation than like the typical author reading at like the local bookstore with like 14 people, half of whom yeah, are family. It, it's 14. Right. That's, That's generous. I dream of 14. Um, but yeah, no, so it, it's a bigger deal. And like, you know, there are tickets and, you know, seats. Um, what do you, that's a weird question, but like, that's what I would be thinking. Like, do I wear a suit? Like, this is what I would be uh, vexed about. Oh yeah. I have no idea. And I'm hoping like, I'll probably just ask the publicist at some point, like, what the hell do I pack? Please make the decision for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, my palms are sweating just thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not used to scrutiny or not scrutiny, but just, I'm not used to being out there in, in, in that kind of way. Um, so yeah, I mean, it'll be fun. Uh, it'll certainly be unlike anything I've ever done. But apart from that, um, the only, the only event, that's really nailed down is, you know, I'm doing a reading here in Austin at the local indie bookstore, uh, at book people. And, and that's it. Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't need, that's the thing too, is that we're like with this much media attention, um, and the viralness of these videos and, you know, just the, maybe you don't need to go do these readings. Cause I, I gotta be honest. I wonder, whether readings make a lick of difference anyhow, you know, it's like if 10 people show up and that's like considered a good night and each mm-hmm. of the, each of them takes the book home, reads it, loves it and evangelizes about it to like two or three of their friends. That's still not mm-hmm. going to likely create the kind of explosion that, you know, happens, but happens rarely. It's a very, right. very, uh, fascinating thing that I've talked about repeatedly on this show. And that I think writers either talk about or think about, often because you know we all sort of want to find readers and it would be great to be able to make a good living and whatnot but you know it should and this is an interesting factor is that even with all of this media attention even with uh the jj abrams involvement and collaboration 
there's no guarantees, you know, like you just, you don't know in this day and age where there's so much coming at people, uh, from all the various forms of media, you just, you never know if something's going to connect, you know? Right. That's right. And even, I mean, the question of whether it connects or not is, is, is kind of separate also though from the, the question of whether it's advantageous for the writer or the publisher or anybody, um, to, to do a book tour, you know, to, to do that sort of, uh, you know, hit the road and show up at seven o'clock and read for 20 minutes and take questions and go back to your hotel. Um, because yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I love, I have loved going out and doing readings. It's fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's fun to get to a city that you don't live in and feel like you've got, you know, a fun kind of big shot reason to be there, even if the, the big shoddiness of it is just all in your head. Um, but I can't say that uh, a publisher has ever gotten their money's, you know, their money's worth out of sending me on the road. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, in, and in fact, like, you know, it, it's actually very easy for me to feel bad about that. Um, Riverhead sent me to Dallas to do a gig. And, and that's not even like, you know, it's, it's a three hour drive. I'm not even getting on a plane. But, you know, they, they got a hotel room for me in this really sweet downtown hotel. And, um, you know, it was uh, I was with my wife and the baby. Uh, and it was actually our first time out of pretty much out of town since the baby had arrived. So, you know, we all trucked up to Dallas and kind of had ourselves a time in, in this hotel. Um, and the reading was the next night and one person came, uh, God, bl- God, bl- God bless that person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and God bless my editor at Riverhead for not demanding that I pay back every cent. Um, but, uh, Anyway, it's all, it's a roundabout digressive way of saying, you know, I, maybe I'm agreeing with you that like, what is going to get this book started is, is the attention from the rollout and JJ's involvement. And, um, and then of course it will, you know, the book will have to stand on its own to keep that going. But I don't know if, you know, Doug going to Kansas city is going to make a damn bit of difference. <laughs> um, I like that as a title somehow, Doug going to Kansas City. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so going forward, uh, you know, future projects, are, are there any plans to do another collaboration? Are you going to go work on something in a, t- in, you know, in a different direction on your own? Do you have any idea? It's, it's still, it's too early to say. Um, there were some things that I, and I was working on that I put aside when, when the opportunity came up, um, you know, and now I have the luxury of going back to them and, and seeing if they feel like they're at all alive or, or worth resuscitating. Um, you know, I, I do think we, I think we've had a really good time with it. I think everybody has felt like the process worked and we like what we came up with and nobody was a nightmare in any way. It was like a remarkably, um, friendly and fun process. So, there, I mean, there's absolutely no reason we wouldn't do something else. But, you know, like everything, it probably depends on it being the right material. And at this point, I have no idea what that would be. Okay. Um, so I, we never even got into your biography. You know, I, I usually people on the show, I find out a little bit about where they're from and 
uh, how they grew up and how they got educated. You mentioned Frank Conroy earlier, so I'm imagining you went to Iowa, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's where I got my MFA. Okay, so where are you from originally? I grew up in New York. Uh, city? And then uh, Westchester, so yeah, like a half hour outside the city. Okay. Uh, and... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like it's a, that's Westchester's. Uh, that's nice, right? That's like it seems like a kind of like an idyllic place to grow up. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a nice place with good schools. I've got nothing to complain about. I didn't, I didn't love it. I'm not racing back to live there because um, <laughs> you know it's got that sort of you know it's got the kind of materialism thing going, and um, and every other person's a bond trader, uh, and right. I. I tend not to have a lot to contribute in conversations about that. Um, but no, perfectly nice place to, to grow up. And, um, and yeah, I'd like, I had the benefit of a really good education. Uh, I went to California for college. I went out to Stanford. Um, and then right after college, I went to law school in Berkeley. So I, you know, I loved the Bay area. I didn't feel any particular need to leave. And, uh, but I hated law school, so I was looking for a way out and uh, found out that a guy I'd known from college, from workshops, was was had just spent a year at Iowa. And I thought, you know, damn him. He he gets to have fun. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, waking up every morning absolutely certain that nothing I learned today is useful or of interest to me. Um, so I kind of just quit studying and reading and polished up my stories and applied. I mean, it was totally a cry for help. Um, and, and it worked out. I was going to say, but it was a cry that was answered. Thank Thank goodness. Yeah, I got, I've, man, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of breaks at exactly the right time. Um, and I've had a lot of people get behind me, um, a lot of the right people at the right time. Um, so, you know, why, why do you think that is? You think that's just luck? Uh, uh, probably to some degree, although probably I try not to be an asshole. Um, <laughs> and I'm guessing as strategies go, that's probably a good one, uh, for, you know, living a life in which people are predisposed to help you or want to see you succeed. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, it might just be that I've come across the right people, um, you know, good people who were, uh, who probably saw things that, that I didn't see and, and kind of coaxed me along or at least gave me a nudge in the right direction well, or time, put time, me in a place where, yeah, I, I was just going to say timing matters too. You know, sometimes timing's mm-hmm. right. And, uh, it's just fascinating. Cause like immediately, immediately my mind goes to somebody similar who might, do you ever think about somebody similar who might have applied and not gotten in or how things could have turned? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, all the time. Yeah. Um, I was just, I was just talking about, uh, I was just talking about this last night, uh, with, with a student of mine. Um, there are so many moments like that. Uh, you know, in my undergrad, uh, years, I was a poli sci major. I'd taken some workshops. I, I liked them, but, it never occurred to me to actually be a writer. And one of my writing teachers took me aside my senior year and spring semester and said, Hey, you know, you're not bad at this. Why not? If you can swing the money, stick around for a fifth year, do the English major, take all the lit classes you can and take all the workshops you can. 
Um, and, and I did, and it was like the best advice that anyone's ever given me and kind of radical advice, I think for, for a workshop instructor to give a student. Um, but you know, but for that, uh, I am not here right now. Well, you know, uh, when I was, you're not the first of your, like I, so many writers have sounded that bell, whether it's, um, you know, a, a junior high school teacher, a high school teacher, a college instructor, like I just have to point it out, like how easy it is for writers to kind of, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of times popular perception or even self-perception among writers is that it's this autodidactic thing and, you know, this kind of individualistic approach and this refusal to bow to authority or whatever, mm. um, you know, where you're kind of detached from kind of institutional, um, help or something of that nature. Mm. But, uh, I've had countless writers on this show when I ask them about their past and how they got to the point of deciding to pursue writing, um, with seriousness. I, I can't tell you how many people have pointed to a teacher or somebody, uh, educationally who pulled them aside and said, Hey, you're good at this. Like, that's a powerful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, it makes you, it makes me aware that as a teacher, um, if I were to say something like that, it's, you know, you don't do that lightly. Um, and then I'm also aware of it because you could also easily withhold that. And, you know, then it's the loss of it might keep them from trying something. Even if you're not consciously withholding it, if you're just out of apathy or distraction or whatever, not saying it when when you could. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's something that I'm aware of, and you know, I've actually I've benefited a lot from institutional support. Um, I totally get. Um, I have a lot of writer friends who think that institutional support is is the worst thing possible, that they really need to be going out and doing it on their own. And and it's worked for them. And, you know, who am I to say that they're wrong? Um, but in my case, uh, the institutional support really helped. You know, getting into Iowa helped me feel better about getting the hell off the law school train. Did you get your uh, degree? Did you get, did you finish? Yeah, I did, but only because I didn't have enough courage to quit. You know, quitting things takes fortitude, um, and I was just kind of drifting along, um, you know, uh, very passively, I think. But it's a nice thing. Um, it's a nice arrow to have in your quiver, just in case. You know? Sure, and I actually, I did, I did work as a lawyer for a year after Iowa. Um, it, I mean, it was it was a an odd set of circumstances, but I essentially I got offered this job at a, at a big firm in San Francisco in part, I think, or largely because I had gone to Iowa, that there was one partner at the firm who was a reader and knew what the workshop was and said, Hey, I bet this kid can probably write. Um, so, so, so yeah, I mean, I had a lawyer gig and, uh, I didn't have much fun and I wasn't especially good at it. And, uh, and I knew it wasn't where I wanted to spend my life or a significant portion of my life. But even then, you know, to quit would require a kind of fortitude and bravery uh, that I don't know that I had. But then if you get a phone call from the Stegner program at Stanford saying, Hey, next year, would you like to come? And, you know, will you spend two years with us just being a writer and taking workshops with Tobias Wolf and other amazing professors? Um, it's a whole hell of a lot easier to give your notice. <laughs> I was gonna, so wait, you, you, know, were, you were a Stegner fellow as well? 
Yeah. So yeah. This is this is strange. I've I've now done back to back shows where I've talked to Oh right, because Jennifer was a Stegner too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I mean yeah. yeah, that's I mean Iowa plus the Stegner Fellowship. That gives you what, four or five years to work in a essentially, you know, you're bankrolled, uh, more or less. I mean, that's a very very fortunate set of circumstances for somebody who's trying to build up. Yeah. I mean, I didn't get bankrolled at Iowa, but Iowa I did on loans, which was one of the reasons why the law job was attractive. I mean, it wasn't really expensive, but, um, I thought they, I thought they, I thought that they, I thought everyone who went to Iowa got their tuition paid, but I guess not, huh? That, that might be the case now, but it's been a while. And when I was there, like financial aid decisions, you know, scholarship, fellowship decisions, um, were, like merit based there's a competition for them and so i mean i think iowa especially then had a kind of reputation for backstabbery um because people were you know first year students were competing for each other for money for the second year um and there would be resentments you'd find out who got the fat scholarship the first year and you know you didn't get it and so um I mean, I, I had a teaching job while I was there. I was actually, having gone to law school, I got a job as a graduate assistant in the writing center of the law school. But I didn't get, uh, you know, I didn't get the, hey, you're a writer and we are rewarding you with, with this money. And, and for good reason, because I really hadn't written much. I hadn't read all that much. And I was just coming out of three years of law school, pretty much having done nothing. And, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I don't know why they let me in. Um, so I was definitely, um, I was not in a position to be one of the ones who was doing the best work at the time. Uh, you know, and that's cool. It worked out. I just needed someone to let me in and then, you know, and to have a situation where I would then have time, uh, to learn and read and, and talk shop with people and figure out, you know, what the hell I wanted to do on the page. Well, it seems to have worked out you know, for what it's worth so far. And, uh, I congratulate you on all this success. It's very exciting. This new book, hey. uh, I'll be interested to see what happens with it. I wish you well on the very brief media tour. And, uh, <laughs> I also wish you well going forward with whatever comes next. Thanks a lot, Brad. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Doug Dorst. Go get his book. It's called S it is written with JJ Abrams. You can find Doug online at dougdorst.com. He's on the Twitter where his handle is at Doug Dorst. And uh, you might be able to find him on Facebook. I think you might be able to. I'm not sure. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the uh, terrific music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com when you get a second. And don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best and easiest uh, and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload. You can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. And uh, it is now available for your iPhone, your iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device, whatever you have. And uh, once again, the app itself is free, so please go get that. Otherwise, uh, I feel good. I like that. I enjoyed that conversation. I feel like Doug and I got into some uh, interesting territory, perhaps some territory that has not quite been covered uh, on this program yet, uh, which is always uh, my mission. I'm trying to deliver quality here, people, and a variation. And I, I uh, strive to make you happy. That's what I'm here for. Uh, I just want to please you. 
I'm a people pleaser. Please remember that Tennyson's father was severely epileptic and that Edmund Wilson once proposed marriage to Edna St. Vincent Millay, only to discover after the fact that she was sleeping with at least four other men at the time she was seeing him. That's it for now. Thanks again to Doug Dorst. Go get his book. I will be back again soon with another episode of this program. Uh, It is November already. Can you believe that? Uh, To me, that seems impossible. 2013, it's almost gone. Time is slipping away. It's slipping away. Oh, my God. (laughs) 